Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, hi again, everybody. This is Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. Our weekly podcast coming your way on the Believe Network. We thank them. We, as always, thank our producer, engineer, Dave Armbruster, for all his hard work. Last uh, couple of weeks, we've been with Joe Buck. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I know I did. It was a pleasure to get to know him off the air than the person you've been watching on the air for years and years and years. Now, this week's guest, for people at Penn State University and uh, in Cincinnati, and a lot of guys who had to play against him in the NFL, they know the name Mike Reed. Many of you may not. He is a fascinating, I think one of the most fascinating stories of anyone that I've ever met in any walk of life. This was a guy who was the best defensive lineman in college football on back-to-back undefeated teams at Penn State in the early 1970s. Won the Maxwell Award. Best defensive player in the country. He's a seventh pick in the draft. He goes to the Bengals. He's a pro bowler two of his first three years. And after his fifth year, he decides to quit and go into the music business. Now, this is a guy who was destined to the Hall of Fame, and I am not exaggerating. Almost 50 sacks in his first four and a half years. In fact, Aaron Donald, when he's been doing his thing for the L.A. Rams, as he was getting sacks after his second year, his third year, his fourth year, his fifth year, He was breaking all the records held by Mike Reed going all the way back to the early 1970s. Mike Reed is our guest next. You're dialed in. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details. Or, for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health, serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Michael Barry Reed was born and raised in Altoona, Pennsylvania back in 1947. He attended college, graduated from Penn State University, where he starred as a defensive lineman for the Nittany Lions. Reed was the Penn State captain in 68 and 69 on teams that went 22-0. He was named the Maxwell Award winner 
as the nation's best defensive lineman, and if you can believe this, is a defensive lineman finished fifth in the Heisman Trophy balloting. In addition to athletics, he majored in music. Mike Reed was a seventh overall pick in the 1970 NFL draft by the Cincinnati Bengals and in very short time established himself as one of the league's best pass rushers. In 72 and 73, recorded 25 sacks and almost 50 in his first four and a half years. Was a two-time Pro Bowler. And then he retired. He retired. He began playing music, formed a band, started playing at the Holiday Inn across the river from Cincinnati in northern Kentucky, then went the solo route and started playing at the world-famous Blind Lemon in Cincinnati. After a gig in Atlanta, Jerry Jeff Walker became the first artist to record a Mike Reed song. In 1980, on it was to Nashville, where he became one of the most in-demand songwriters for the likes of Ronnie Millsap, Alabama, Larry Gatlin, Bonnie Raitt, the list goes on and on. In 1990, he recorded a solo album, and that produced a number one country hit, Walk on Faith. Since then, he's written seven musicals. In 2005, he was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. He is husband to Susan and the father of two children, Matthew and Katie, and a pleasure to have with us on Dialed In, Mr. Mike Reed. Mike, what did I miss that you're the most proud of? Tom, I'm sitting here stunned by that introduction. I, I, uh, Wow, you certainly have done your homework. You, you've recalled things that I have forgotten. And um, yeah, nothing, nothing. You know, the, you mentioned my kids, and you have kids. You know what it is to um, feel wonderful about the lives they've decided to live and uh, be the people they are. And so um, pr- uh, proud, I don't really, it's interesting, Tom, you know, um, when you and I talked about doing this, I had some reservations yep. because the past, the past is, uh, um, I, you know, without getting too much into it, the past is something I don't spend a lot of time or try not to spend a lot of time um, thinking about. So um, to hear what you said there in that introduction is, uh, I find really interesting. Um, but pride is a, is something that I think is a, um, can be a slippery slope. Yep. But I'm going to ask you to go back a little bit. And I want to go back to growing up in Altoona, Pennsylvania. It's a town which really grew around the railroad industry. In fact, it's the home to the Railroaders uh, Memorial Museum. Your father was a railroader. I've yeah. never known anybody uh, growing up, and I mean, I've, I've known them coming from all walks of life, uh, from all over the world, including a tugboat captain, but I've never known uh, anyone whose father or mother was a railroader. What was that life like? Well, no, it was a very, uh, it was a wonderful life, Tom. You know, I mean, it wasn't the perfect uh, situation at all. Dad was, uh, yeah, he worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. And, you know, in those days, in those years, that was the job to have an Altoona. If you could get on with a railroad, you were, you were thought to be, okay, you're set for, for a while. I do remember times um, people have oft, uh, often asked me about what you learn from coaches, particularly, uh, you know, my sophomore year at Penn State was Joe Paterno's first year mm-hmm. as head coach. So I got in on, on the 
early part of Joe. But the thing I remember learning, Tommy, um, most profoundly uh, impacting my life was my dad being laid off from the railroad. And um, he would never say a word about it. Uh, he would go down to Mallow's drug, uh, Mallow's hardware store, bought a, bought a couple of ladders, would lash them to the side of the car and go around and paint those two and three story houses. Now, if you've ever tried to do that, that is really grinding hard work. Mm-hmm. Come home, would never say a word about it. We all sat at the supper table, never complained. Um, and he did that until he was called back to the railroad and he picked up where he left off. Those, that kind of thing is, is really had more of a stamp on me than, than almost much of anything else, really. Western Pennsylvania, Mike, is also all about football. I mean, some of the greatest players in the history of the NFL have come out of that general region. Were you all about football as far back as you can remember as a kid? Yeah, I mean, we had we had a we had a, a we were like a pack of dog. I lived out in the country, not in the country country, but away from the town. And we had a group of us kids, and we played. Tom, I don't know if you did this. We played growing up sports twelve months a year. That's oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, and I did. We, we played uh, we played you know uh, baseball in the winter and football in the summer. And <laughs> it didn't matter what didn't matter what season it was. We had a we were like a pack of uh, mad dogs running those hills and roads in the neighborhood. And uh, absolutely, I mean, my, my, uh, I remember the days of, uh, I'm going to be dating myself, but Tom, the bomb Tracy. Oh yeah, of course. Tom, the bomb Tracy running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers and John Henry Johnson and, uh, Bobby Lane, when he was a quarterback for the Steelers, I wasn't a particular, uh, a, a fan necessarily, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I remember. I remember Alan Amici, you know, scoring sure. in the winning touchdown in the, what's thought to be the greatest game of all time, which is questionable. But yeah, yeah, I was. I was about athletics, but at the same time, you know, music was had come into my life as a, at a very early age. So, well, you um, you start playing a piano at roughly six years old. If, if, correct me if I'm wrong. There, you're 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 starting on your grandmother's piano, and right. your teacher was a guy named Earl Wild. Now, Earl, Earl Wild was my teacher in college. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought that that he was your piano. Okay. So, but you start playing on your grandmother's piano. That's correct, right? Right. And my first teacher was rest in peace. She'd been gone a long time. Elsie Cover. Isn't that a great Altoona name, Tommy? Yes, it is. (laughs) And she would be the one that you wrap your uh, knuckles with a ruler. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I started when I was very young, and then and then um, I got into. I, I went to a junior high uh, that had no athletics, so I didn't get into sports at all until high school, um, uh, and then I sort of drifted away. But I never the love of music was always there from the time I first became um, conscious of actually hearing music. Were probably you know you hear a lot of stuff, but but the first time I started listening to music were probably the hymns in church on Sundays. Um, I, and I think that those kinds of songs inform, have informed what I've written over the course of my life. I've just always loved those uh, emotional songs of surrender. So that, that was probably the first music I started actually listening to. Right. Paying it. 
So, so you're the big star football player by the time you get into high school in Altoona, uh, but you're also uh, continuing on as a pianist. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, did you get a lot of heat from the football players about being this music guy? And, and also, at the same time, did you get any heat from the sort of artsy crowd, the music crowd, about hanging out with a bunch of blockhead football players? No, I never got heat, but I, but I, they were definitely two disparate worlds. I mean, I remember at college, I would, at Penn State, I would go through the music building halls like, uh, you know, um, I always had the feeling the other students were like, oh, no, here it comes. I hope it's well fed. I hope it's not hungry. Right. Uh, here he is, the mouth-breathing knuckle-dragger. Right, right. You know, going in to practice the piano. I had a very funny, you know, you mentioned Earl Wilde, who was a man who was very influential in my life. He was an extremely, he was a, probably the only genius I ever dealt with, I think. And, uh, but he was, I'll tell you, Tony, how little he knew about the world. Of He would say to me at a lesson, I would be at a lesson, he was a rather flamboyant guy, and uh, he would say to me uh, during the lesson, he would uh, ask me if I had football rehearsal. <laughs> right? And rather than explain it to him, because that wasn't quite the language, I would say, yes, Earl, I do, and I have to leave immediately to get into my costume. <laughs> That's great stuff. Right? That's great stuff. Yeah, so th- th- those worlds were pretty bad. And I think the music department was more curious. The sports guys, from the time I you got into you know college and then in the pros, the guys on the team were always it was they were always fascinated and interested. Sure, in. sure they would be. I mean, because Mark, everybody that doesn't play music, you want to play music. You want to be able to do it. You know what I mean? Well, when we had there was a little chapel at uh, Wilmington, Ohio, which is where the Bengals uh, camp was, and there was a chapel, and I knew the the, the minister there, and he gave me a key. Uh, during off during the uh, preseason, you know, the camp. And I would, after our evening meetings, we would have probably an hour and a half, maybe two hours before we had the curfew and go over to this chapel and, and sit and play the piano just to, just to play. And word got out. Eventually I had a, you know, a crowd of 10, 11, 12, 14 guys would come over and they didn't care what I played. They just wanted to sit there and hear that somebody play music. Sure, sure. So, no, it, I think the old thing about, you know, are you getting ribbed by being um, a piano player or writing the songs or poetry or whatever, that's a little bit of a thing from the from long ago. I think it's a different different world now. When you're at Penn State and you went to football rehearsal, you mentioned the name earlier, and that was Joe Paterno. Um, he obviously doesn't uh, recruit you because he's not the head coach yet. What was no. your relationship like once he came on board as the head coach? Because we all know what kind of career he had. But but what was it like initially when he took over as head coach? He was an look. Anybody our size, Tommy, knew that you could you could uh, you know fill your your hands with his skinny little neck, and that'd be the end of that. You know, but but he was a very for me somebody like me. He was a very intimidating guy in this sense. And I think it marks an important quality that, that football coaches, you know, the great coaches are great for probably a, a few reasons. Um, 
One of the reasons Joe, uh, first of all, he loved the game passionately. He was extremely, he was crazy in love with it. But he was also inspired in young guys. I lived in fear of Joe, not physically, obviously, but I lived in fear of disappointing him. I would go to almost any length to make sure that I did not disappoint this guy. Now, was it a warm, fuzzy thing? No. No, he wasn't at all. He was a, uh, he wasn't quite uh, what Paul Brown was or George Hallis or um, Lombardi. He wasn't what those guys I call Old Testament coaches, you know. Mm-hmm. Joe was sort of a transitional guy from that uh, into a, uh, a little more of a modern coach, but there were rules you just did not break or you would pay the price. And I assume, I can only assume he maintained that. Uh, I don't know. You know, once once Joe became Joe Pa, and things probably got a little different. But mm-hmm. in his early years, in his early years, the other thing about it too, Tommy, is he had a vision. Joe had a vision of what he thought a program should be, and he also it was very important to him that uh, players. You know, there was no athletic dorm at Penn State, and I think that's still the case. Because Joe, it was important for Joe to, the, to Joe that the players have a full college experience. He didn't want them there just to play football. He wanted to know, uh, wanted them to know what it was like to be in college as as much as they could be, like other students. So he wasn't a guy. You know, the guy I'm thinking about. You know, I would have loved to have played in the pros for a guy like Tony Dungy. I think I would have done very well under a guy like that because it would have been very similar you know, to uh, Tony Dungy being really the essence of what it means to be, what appears to be a really great human being. Um, but Joe, Joe was more a taskmaster. He was more a fiery Italian taskmaster. Um, we would communicate a little bit when the, uh, we got into music and some awards came my way. I always heard from him congratulating me. But, but it was not a, a hug you. Kind of relationship mm-hmm. at all, yeah. So you're the best player on the best team in the country. I mean, you guys don't lose a game. Your last two years at Penn State, you go 22 and 0. You're a two-time first-team All-American. I mentioned earlier you finished fifth in the Heisman Trophy balloting, which is just mind-boggling to me. Um, you know you're going to be a first-round draft choice in the NFL. But is the battle beginning internally in your mind now about football versus music at that point in time? No, I don't think it had because you, you can – now, the, back in those days, Tom, you know, it's not like what it is today where you have – it's almost like – the draft is almost like a coronation for Pete's sake. Uh, you didn't have that kind of thing. Nothing was on TV. Certainly – it goes without saying this that the it was the beginning of the time of of this modern era of the game it was the beginning of of it becoming this uh, having this uh, stranglehold on the culture but it wasn't there yet i mean my heavens this the sons of money as you mentioned very generously i was the seventh kid drafted in the first round and i signed for $22,000 wow so um so you can see, and I think the kid, the seventh pick, this last draft signed for $23 million. So I missed by a couple of zeros. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. You know, just, just, just by a couple. No, but it was it was not really. I mean, the energy of being a first-round pick, 
you, you can imagine, look, I'm still this kid from Altoona, uh, Juniata Gap, which is a suburb of Altoona. And uh, I fly again on a plane and fly out, and I'm in front of Paul Brown. I mean, it's uh, pretty heady stuff. You know, there was uh, not – the opportunity was there. I was um, – I was – I don't know. I, I mean, I, I was kind of being, in the sense, Tommy, dragged along by events. You know, this is the next sure, thing you do. Sure. This is go and and then. Um, um, but no, there wasn't any because I tell you why, and I would say this in case there is a young musician listening to your show, there would have been nothing in my um, anyone would have spotted in me as a young man that said. Oh, what a talent he should be in music. Uh, my talents were in the in the sports world, mm-hmm. whatever they were, and my but this passion and love was in the music. So realistically to say, are you going to make a life in music? I'm not sure that thought really ever entered my mind until I moved to Nashville. Okay, well, but but nonetheless, here you start your NFL career. And I mean, I... You know, I, I remember doing NFL games the last number of years and, and, and Aaron Donald, the outstanding defensive tackle of the L.A. Rams. And and all of a sudden, you know, he'd reach a plateau after his second year in sacks, his third year in sacks, his fourth year in sacks. And every single time, he's breaking the records held by Mike Reed going all the way back to the 1970s. Now, you know, you're, you go to the Pro Bowl twice – you are on your way to having – I don't think there's any doubt about it. I mean, you talk to people around that, that, that were with you and played against you, and I have many times, and they'll say, this guy was going to the Hall of Fame. But are, are, are you thinking – you talk about you know sort of events dragging you along. But Chuck Studley, I read a quote, the former coach, uh, football coach, for many, many, many decades, where he said there'd be times in practice where you'd look at him and say, what in the hell am I doing here? That, um, gee, this is, you know, an early in our talk here, Tommy, I, I, I said, I get uncomfortable about the past. This is a, this is something I, um, uh, when I was a young, younger man, I never thought about, but as I enter old age and, you know, I'm at a stage where you begin to assess your life. Um, I, not too heavily. I don't want to look back t- uh, too much. But I do think about it now, you know, and I think um, to myself, you know, that what a curious thing these things were were going on in your life. I don't I never had the thought that, wow, you you're all pro twice in your five years. I didn't it just those thoughts just never occurred to me, you know, Um, and I think to myself now, man, maybe you should have, you know. But then until I then the next moment I start rehearsing reality, and I think really honestly, Tommy, if I think back to those days, I'm not sure I had another game in me. You know, I was awful small for a defensive tackle, and in those days, it was the very beginning. But the end of my playing days was when the nose tackle position started to mm-hmm. come into. Well, I would have been nowhere near big enough to play nose tackle. I didn't have the rangy speed of a, you know, a defensive end. Um, and I would have been a lost ball in the high weeds as a linebacker. So 
Um, depending on if they, you know, the, the nose tackle position became the dominant thing uh, there for a while. I'm not sure where I would have ended up. You know, I, I was pretty beat up. I'd had a number of knee operations. I'd had a, a shoulder tear and I had a cracked vertebra in my low four, L4 and L5. So I was, I was somewhat beat up. The medical care is different now than it was then. Um, but I, I think about it. I, I think about it. You know, I think about, about having what would, what would, uh, but then, but, but then you're, then you're, you're trying to think about changing the space time continuum, you know, that, uh, then all kinds of things would have been different. Maybe I wouldn't have met my wife. Maybe I wouldn't have had mm-hmm. Matt and Katie. And I would, I would uh, go through ten lifetimes to have Matt and Katie, my kids. So I wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to change that. But I don't know. Uh, do you ever have that feeling? You well, know, you, you know, like- I mean, look, I've only been able to do one thing. I mean, you know, you you were blessed with the ability to go do you know music along with being a great football player. I mean, I, I'm having to find out for the first time in my life ever since I uh, you know made a terrible mistake last uh, last summer, and now all of a sudden you know you go from seemingly professionally sitting on top of the world, and and uh, all of a sudden it comes to a uh, grinding halt. And so, you know, much like, uh, you know, your dad, uh, you know, I think my kids and I pray my kids come home every night and they see their dad not sitting around and complaining and woe is me. And, you know, you got to keep grinding and finding something else to do. And, and, and that's where we're trying to go. Do you remember the, the exact what? moment or was there such a thing to, mm-hmm. to tie a ribbon around your football life? Do you remember the exact moment when you said, I'm done? Yes, I do. That's a great question. And I do remember. I had a little dog, an adorable little dog. Mandy was her name. She was a little black, um, you know, just mixed. And uh, I took her everywhere. And it was in the off season. And I was jogging down at Spinney Field. I was jogging and working out. And I had this little dog with me. And I stopped and I said, Reed, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, you're not coming back. And uh, it kind of shook me, actually, a little bit, Tommy. And I went home and thought about it. And um, which I had, to, had to be very sure. And then when I, was, when I was sure, the first thing I did was uh, go and talk to the old man because, I, again, he was another guy. He was not a warm, fuzzy guy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he was, uh, what was he? He was, uh, he was like a monument, you know. Sure. And. And he commanded enormous, enormous respect, if for no other reason than everything he had done for the game. And so I uh, made a made an appointment, went in to see him. And he was, uh, you know, I never knew Paul to be, I didn't know Paul that well, but uh, he was so warm and generous to me that day. I'll never forget wow. that. He, he, took, he said, yeah. It was almost as if he, he knew, yeah. he saw it. And he said to me, he said, well, best of luck and whatever, and, and remember you always, as long as I'm here, he said, you always have a home here. He was very generous. Now, on the other, you mentioned Studley. Stud was, uh, Chuck Studley was our defensive line coach, you know. And the other thing, too, Tommy, I mean, maybe they were glad to get rid of me because Oh, nobody, come on. Come hey, on. Nobody, stop, please. Nobody. All right, stop. Stop, stop. Tom, nobody tried to talk me out of it. Well, so, well yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I can't speak to that part of it, but I mean, come okay, on. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what would have happened if I would have been 
sat down, if they would have sat down and said, look, we understand where you are and we understand your other part is, you know, the things you love in life, but here's our plan. Here's our plan for the franchise. You know, you could feel that, Tommy. Back in those days, you could feel, you know, when I first came into the league, the Steelers were the doormat, man. They had, they had terrible losing seasons, and you could feel them beginning to turn that thing around. Right around in 73, I think it was Bradshaw, you know, Bradshaw struggled mm-hmm. getting finding himself. It was him and Hanratty, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that were quarterbacks. But you could feel them. You could feel them finding themselves. You could feel that franchise saying, "Okay, okay, now, now we're we're beginning. We've, we're, it's like a Rubik's cube, you know. Now we're beginning to uh, get the colors all lined up here, you know. You could feel it. And around my fourth year, man, uh, Royce Berry, my room roommate on the road, we were walking off the field and said, "Man, I'm not sure I want to play those guys next year." Right, right. Because they got, and they got big too. But that they got, we, that's a different conversation to have. I mean, the same lineman. The next year, they came out, and I said to Royce, "I said, I wonder what weight program these guys are." <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a whole oh, different story in and of itself. That's, that's a whole different thing. But you could tell now. Now you know, as, as, coming from Joe's, Joe's whole impetus was he wanted you. He would grind. He would ride you and grind you, Joe Paterno. He would ride you and grind you all week, and then inevitably Saturday, as we're before we're going out on the field, Tom, he would say, "All right, guys, you've worked your tails off all week. Now it's time to go have fun. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to go have fun. There wasn't any of this. Life is hanging in the balance. If you win or lose, and that." Him sending us out on the field, knowing we had worked, but it was time to have fun. It was time to, you know. And look, anything I might say to you about the Bengals, I will say, knowing full well that I had enormous admiration for Paul, and I count Mike Brown, although I don't see Mike or talk to him much. I had a, a very a big scare a couple of years ago, health-wise, and I almost checked out. And Mike was one of the first persons people I heard from when I recovered and got back on my feet. But um, maybe had it been, you know, you you can sense these franchises. I don't know what Belichick does up there. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, uh, you know, or or are the Chiefs and the, and the Tampa Bay, are they going to be able to continue on this? But you can feel that sense of franchise. I had that with Joe. You had this, what would you call that, Tom? It's like a momentum. Yeah, it is. It's just a feeling. I mean, athletes I've talked to, you just get a sense looking around you and the way the culture is starting to change and the way the the practices are going and the commitment. And, and now all of a sudden execution, because you and I both know at the end of the day, you know, you can practice until you're blue in the face. But, uh, you know, when you take the field to go have fun, you still have to execute. All right, I want to circle back now to – um, you you start going out and playing music, and you know you're playing at the Holiday Inn across the river in Cincinnati. Then you start playing our good friends. Uh, they're like a second mom and dad to me. Uh, Pat and Eddie Shepherd in Cincinnati. They've owned the Blind Lemon in Cincinnati, world famous place for better than uh, almost fifty years. Are there ever times where you're in these bars or in these nightclubs and playing until two two thirty in the morning? where you ask yourself the same question that you asked Chuck Studley, what in the hell am I doing here? No, 
No, there wasn't in those, particularly the lemon. Eddie Shepard and Pat and Eddie and Pat Shepard, you mentioned like second mom and dad to you. They're my best friends in the world. Mm-hmm. They were best friends. Uh, Eddie, I would play the blind lemon uh, there on a weekend, a Friday or Saturday. I don't know. Eddie would know because he knows every every penny. <laughs> he's ever but he would say he claims he I was well paid. Listen, I would pay. I would play the blind lemon in the back in those days for twenty dollars a night. He claims it was more. It was not more. It was $20 a night, but I took the rest of it out of uh, beer and popcorn. Sure. I took massive amounts of beer and popcorn to make sure I got my fair uh, pay. No, I never – I don't think so, Tom. I don't think in those days. When I had a band, we were out on the road, and I was playing the Allegheny River Hotel in in, uh, Warren, Pennsylvania. It was a condemned hotel. And and the band stayed in the hotel. It was condemned. But there was this club in the basement, in the basement. And I had this little band, and we did something it was, a, it was probably not wise to do, but we did mostly originals. And then we would do some covers, you know, of the hits sure. of the day. And uh, so I'm on a break uh, from between sets. I'm in the stall in the, rest, in the men's room. These two guys come in. They're at the uh, standing, you know, at the whatever. And one guy says to the other one, he says, uh, man, he said, uh, I think this is the worst band we've ever had here. <laughs> and the other, guy says, this guy, the other guy says, no, no, no. You remember you remember about three months ago that, that girl singer when that band and those guys that wore those uh, weird shirts? You remember that band? I think that. And then there was silence, and then the other guy says, no, no, man, this band is the worst band we've ever had. So they, they debated it, but yeah, that was, I never, I never thought, you know, I never thought in terms of, uh, I don't think it's because, you know, I think, Tom, it's, uh, because I wasn't thinking in terms of being successful as much as I was thinking in terms of trying to learn how to do something mm-hmm. well. You know, I don't think it was a matter of saying it was, it was very much coming into the league, you know, in, in those days or in college even. How do we be successful? No, no. I think that the primary thing, you know, I would say to young people and I always say to young, the road to um, road to some reasonable, reasonable happiness, contentment in as much as life can be that is not true achievement always or success but through competence, the, the road to, to uh, you know, learn to be competent at something, learn to do something well. Um, maybe the successes and achievements will take care of themselves after that. Uh, so, so you meet, so you meet Jerry Jeff or Jerry Jeff Walker catches wind of one of your songs called Eastern yeah. Avenue River Railroad Blues. And he becomes yeah. the first known, really known guy to record one of your songs. Do you look back at that, even though you have, you know, dozens and dozens of number one hits that are still to come that you wrote, but is that your big break? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what it was for me. It was the first, it was, it was a very, and I I hear this word all the time and I, I think it's wildly overused. And I will say it was awe inspiring to have this guy record something. And it ended up, 
uh, a little cassette tape back in those days, Tom. I was at the Great Southeast Music Hall with Jack Tarver, who used to own it, and we it was two, three in the morning, and we had, we had, we're into our cups, and he said, "Play me something," and I fumbled and played this song, and he recorded it, and ended up uh, sending it to Jerry Jeff. That's how Jerry Jeff got a hold of that. But so when that record came out, I was just, I I was stunned. Sure. To pull a record out and see my name underneath a song. Now I got to tell you this: this I love this story. I have an older brother, uh, Will, who I love and adore. My older brother. We we live in different worlds. He's a different kind of guy. But um, I got this record and I bought a bunch of them and I I went home to uh, to Pennsylvania, uh, mom and dad, and uh, dad was still with us and we I got this record and my brother was there. He comes down. And he says, yeah, I heard about you. You got this song, right? So let me hear it. So we put the record on. He opens up the album jacket, and there are the printed lyrics. And he's listening. And my brother, my older brother is the only guy I know, Tom, in the world that music means less than nothing to him. Okay? <laughs> it means nothing to him. So this song is playing, and he's, uh, the Eastern Avenue is playing. And he very honestly, he didn't mean this to be mean at all. He looked up at me puzzled and said, <laughs> he looked up at me puzzled and said, do people buy this stuff? <laughs> right? <laughs> said, yeah, well, hard, hard to believe that there are people, there are people that will buy this. But that was the moment that I thought, hmm, you know, I never, I, look, to this day, Tom, I've had a life in music, but I'm still not 100% convinced I'm a writer. And that's probably why I continue to to dig and try to figure it out, you know, because um, you can you can figure out an entertainment system, but you will never figure out writing altogether. But that was Jerry Jeff, who rest in peace, just passed here recently, um, and he remained a friend up until he, the end. He um, uh, that was yeah, that was the first one that I went wow, something on a record that was something to. Think maybe there uh, there might be a life in that. Well, and now that's just the beginning of what's to come because all of a sudden now it, it, it's it's becoming in demand, if you will. You know, you, Ronnie Millsap and Larry Gatlin and Alabama. I mean, some of the giants in the '80s and the '90s. You know, you have twelve number one hits. Um, Bonnie Raitt, uh, one of those. I, I got to tell you, you know, um, and 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 maybe. You know, and I've heard other songwriters and musicians when they're asked about a particular song, but but I have to tell you uh, that song um, "I Can't Make You Love Me" that was recorded by Bonnie Raitt. I, I'm not so sure there could be a more beautiful, while at the same time cooler song. And I hope you're not offended by that with me saying that. I I, I listen to that song. And it, I just find it to be such an incredible song. What what inspired that song? Actually, I, and I wrote that with a dear friend, Texas buddy Alan Shamblin. Um, I we it was an article in the newspaper about a guy who uh, you know Tom lost everything. Um, in his case, it was um, um, drink, and he ended up um, uh, on the street. And it was, and he was a relative of uh, one of the uh, political, some politician in town, 
and it was an article about him, and he he said, and this woman had left, and his wife had left him, and, and he said in this article, uh, I've tried, but I just can't make her love me. I've tried, but I just can't make her love me. And so uh, I think the idea came from that. And, you know, for when Al and I got together for a, the longest time, for months, Ricky Skaggs was having hits, and there's what we thought were professional songwriters. We thought, let's write this. This seems like an up-tempo bluegrass kind of country song for Ricky Skaggs, and that's what it was for about six months. Uh, the only lines we could I could come up with where I can't make you love me if you don't, you can't make your heart feel something that it won't. Mm -hmm. That had a up-tempo feel to it. And one day, after dropping the kids, they were a little off at school, I come home, and that whole this whole other verse music came out, and I thought, hmm, I wonder what that is, that whole other verse. And then I thought of this up-tempo bluegrass song idea, and I thought, I wonder if those possibly could work together. And they did, and I called Alan, and then we took, it was a, uh, I, I, I'm okay with the song, Tom, in the sense that there's a, not a lot of fat in that song. There's It's an economy of lyric. It says directly what it means to say, which is which is all that a writer can do. Right. Uh, you, you have to ask yourself, are you saying what it is you mean to say? And I I, I appreciate that song for that reason. Um, but I think the universality of the song is the popularity of the song is based on the fact that everybody knows what it's like to want someone who sure. doesn't want. Sure, sure, sure. You know, um, you know, Pat Shepard, you brought up her name earlier, and, and, and you know, she and I had a, a long visit because of your friendship for so long and trying to pick her brain a little bit. And, you know, my wife had asked me, she said, you know, I, I think you ought to ask Mike a little bit about does he ever run out of material? And, and so I asked Pat that question, and she said, you know, the reason this guy never runs out of material is because he's a tormented soul. <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I mean, these are your friends talking behind your back, Mike Reed. She said he'll never run out of out of material. He's a tormented soul. <laughs> I I I, re I got to tell say, Tom, I'm I'm extremely touched by that, and I love Pat. I love Pat, and I love Eddie very much. They are, as I say, my best friends, and we're communicating, if not every day, certainly five days a week. You know, and. Um, yeah, I suppose, you know, I mean, I suppose to some degree uh, there's something I said to my son. My son is uh, is in graduate school at Northwestern in psychology. And I said to him, and this is I said to this and we both had a big laugh. I said, Maddie, the only thing I can figure out is that something must have scared the daylights out of me a long time ago. And I still won't know what it, what it is. And I've been trying to figure out what it is that scared the pants off of me a long time ago. I think that's extremely touching, and and because it came from Pat, I think it's hilarious too. But there is a, there's an element of truth. There is trying to you know Carl Jung, the great psychologist, you know, characterized life, Tommy, as a uh, moment between two vast mysteries. And I find a lot of beauty. I find experience of God, and I find a lot of beauty in the in the mystery, mm -hmm. in the mystery of things, in the not knowing. And so Arthur Miller, the great playwright, referred to it as the hidden narrative, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
and he spoke about that in relationship to plays of his that didn't quite work as well. When you know when something is really working, really working, and working in a way that it is beyond your control, you're getting close to the hidden narrative. You're getting a little closer to that mystery, to the mystery of things, you know. I find enormous beauty in that. And to say, um, um, was it your your wife that said to ask Mike if he runs out of material? Yeah, yeah. Polly uh, brought uh, that up with me when we were talking Polly, about doing this show. I think that's a beautiful question. And I guess I would say to Polly, no. Polly, it's a little like asking someone, have you run out of life? You know? Yeah, have you run interesting, out of, interesting. Have you run out of being alive? And no. So far, I haven't. I struggle with certain physical things, but no, so far, I'm, I have not. Uh, but I, I'm glad you told me that, Tom, because I love Pat. And um, she, and I know she would say that uh, strictly from a great place. Uh, of, of course love. she did. She says it with the utmost affection and love. You know, when, 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 when now all of a sudden you have all these hits, and I want to get to two or three more things here before we run out of time. And, and you know, then you decide to launch a solo career. You have a number one hit, Walk on Faith. Then you have two more albums. And I'm curious, would you prefer to be the guy who's up there singing and performing a number one hit or being the guy who wrote the number one hit and I'd not performing rather, it? Much rather be the guy who wrote it. Much rather be the guy who wrote it. Uh, I First of all, that whole thing about making that record, Tommy, was I went about that in, in I don't recommend that. You know, these these stars you see today are they are obsessed. They're they're that's all they eat, sleep, drink. I had a I had a great songwriting life and I had a and I'll tell you how it happened. Um, CBS. So, well, they were CBS in those days. Sony Records. Uh, Willie was on the, on their label and he cut a song of mine called uh, There You Are. Um, and Bob Montgomery from the head of ARs called up and said, hey, we like Willie's record. We love Willie's record, but I like your demo a little more. Why don't you make a record? And I was going along, you know, by this time, Tommy, I was in my 40s, and my mm-hmm. kids were still little. And I said, well, sure, okay. Well, that's no way to go about that. You know, now I tripped over myself with Steve Buckingham in the studio, and we did hit Walk on Faith. And the next thing I know, man, I'm in a bus with a bay full of t-shirts sure. and, and kissing my kids goodnight. And my daughter, who is 30, she's in her early 30s now. Back in those days, every time dad left, she would get a fever, have a fever. And uh, the performer, to start a performing career, Tom, is a young person's game. You can't, you can't begin that when you're, when you, as I did at the age, and, and do it in a non I've been a committed writer of whatever I've written um, my whole life, my whole, since the football days. But I wasn't, I was never, I remember we opened uh, in the Tri-City, there's Kingsport, um, uh, Johnson City, up around Tennessee. All my records, uh, when I was uh, supporting that record, that album went to number one in that area. So I went up there one summer. And they had a week-long festival. Well, the big stars were the weekends. Guys like me were early Monday and Tuesday. But, man, the place was packed. And uh, and you would have thought I was Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at these young girls from the stage. 
And all I could think of was, and they were to look at me in a certain way, and all I could think of was, you should be home. What are you doing? <laughs> you should be home doing your, in bed doing your homework, for Pete's sake, right? And then I would never have had a comfortable feeling about being in front of people. The ego loves it, you know. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But your, but your soul, you know, you can only go so long uh, 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 feeding your ego at the expense of your soul. Mm-hmm. Eventually, that's that's going to catch up with you. And and so um, I was not sufficiently compelled. I've been compelled to write songs and make music, but not necessarily. Um, and as I say, I, when I got home, my kids were still little and... Uh, I would just be out on the road, and I'd be at a after thing with a radio disc mm-hmm. jockey, I, and I would think I wouldn't pee on this guy's head if his hair was on fire. <laughs> and here I am; my kids are home wondering where Dad is. So that began to eat away at me a little bit. So um, no, I'm I'm good. Uh, you know, the great thing about uh, um, being the writer of the song is you just uh, walk to the mailbox in your bathrobe and then go back home. Yeah. 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 While, while, while you're cashing all those checks in 1991, you decide to go in an entirely new direction. I shouldn't say you, you would have to define that for me and our audience uh, about whether it's an entirely new direction, but you begin to write musicals. Now I, I think you've written seven of them. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Now, I was in a lot of musicals in high school. I, I, I loved music. I had the lead in Guys and Dolls and a bunch of other stuff in high school. I loved it. I loved oh, every minute, minute of it. And wait a minute. You were the perfect. Who was the, who was the main guy? Sky um, Masterson. I, that, Sky, that was me. All right. So I, I would have been the per- – yeah, as a matter of fact, I might end up going back to that because I don't have a real job. But but at I any rate – The horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. Absolutely. Oh, what a great, Frank great, great musical. I mean, I was in My Fair Lady in Oklahoma and guys. And I mean, but anyway, but what I'm getting at is this. When you're sitting down and you're writing a musical, okay, there's also a lot of uh, dialogue in the musical. But how hard is that to put all of that with all of those moving pieces together to, 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 to write a score for a musical that, that's being based off of a story of some kind. You, you get what I'm asking here, or am I not asking it the right way? No, you're asking uh, perfectly, perfectly. You, you, don't, you can't come at something like that as a whole, Tom. You can't say, okay, how am I going to make a musical? First thing you have to do, and I, the first musical I wrote, we, I, I did not follow this rule. You have to have the book in place. The book is actually the dialogue. What is the arc of the story? What are people going to say? What's, the, what's the, the dilemma? You know, the narrative is driven by two things, intent and obstacle. What does the character intend? And what are the obstacles that he, that he or she is, are going to have to overcome to get to what they desire? And maybe, you're, maybe they're going to get what they desire. Maybe they won't. You know, that's the tension of the narrative. You have to have that in place. Then once you have that in place, once you know um, Sky Masterson's story and uh, those characters or Sweeney Todd's story or um, George Surratt, the, uh, Sunny in the Park with George, once you know the arc of where they're trying to get, then you begin to musicalize that. And you don't think in terms of a whole chunk. You take it a moment 
by moment. This moment seems to be appropriate for musicalization. Um, ideally, songs happen when simple speech is not sufficient for the moment. So you can elevate the speech by musicalizing it. But you have to then you identify this seems to be a sufficient uh, moment, dramatic mm-hmm. moment, for, and then you begin that way. But you do it in little in little chunks. You don't take it on as a whole, or it will overwhelm you. Songwriter Dan Schlitz, uh, this is one of my, I find this to be, if someone ever said this about me in, in any walk of life, as a dad, as a husband, as a Christian, anything, I mean, he was quoted as saying of you, quote, he's the most complete writer in music, the entire field. He only competes with himself, unquote. I bring up that quote. As we wrap it up, Mike Reed, what's next for you? Well, that's a, from from Don. That it, that's an amazing thing, and because he's one of the seminal, one of the he's had a success here in town unparalleled. And of course, Don is the is the writer of the Gambler. If you, as a songwriter, if you never wrote anything but the Gambler, you would be considered a successful mm-hmm. writer. Um. Always work. The, the projects are quiet. I just uh, wrote something with Kenny Chesney, and Kenny seems to like it quite a bit. It was his idea. Wow. I was very, very pleased that he came to me and said, what do you think? He had cut a song of mine an album or two ago called Always Gonna Be You, and we talked about a uh, possible sequel to that song, and it was Kenny's idea, and I think we've written something that um, uh, works. Now, whether then, Tom, you never know whether whether he records it or not, and because artists record songs for a myriad and and don't record them for a million different reasons, so who knows? But I um, I'm hopeful about that. I also write uh, poetry, and I've got uh, the project, current project is will be out sometime this year of uh, a setting of um, um, they're kind of prose poems. Um, I don't even know if they're poetry. They're language under conditions in which I believe in, and then I put a musical accompaniment. They're not sung, though. It's uh, the atmosphere of the words trying to be supported by the atmosphere of the music. So my dream is a book of those, you know, a collection of those um, to be offered. Um, who knows? You know, it's an entirely different world. CDs are on the way out. They're by. They're probably going to be completely gone by the end of this year, and it'll all be in the ether on the uh, internet. You know, mm-hmm. so so that you know that gets me out of bed. I come over every morning. I sit down. I turn on the, the gear. I improvise for anywhere from five to ten minutes. Those are what I call uh, benediction morning benedictions, mm-hmm. and they are reminders um, to be grateful for having had a life in music. And so that's how I start the day. Sometimes they morph into wonderful things or things that work, and sometimes um, you throw them away. Uh, you never know what's going to be. But um, I will just, uh, you know, to uh, I'm not going to jump out of the canoe at this point, Tom, and try try to swim for sure. I'm just going to go. go <laughs> I'm going to stay in the canoe and go over the falls, buddy. <laughs> well, uh, Mike, I can't thank you enough. Uh, God bless you and Susan and the two kids. And uh, and I, I I just I really can't thank you enough for your time. This has just been a a, a fabulous visit. 
your career in, in, in two different worlds, but the most important world is a husband and a dad. Uh, you've had three incredible careers. So thank you for your time and all the best, Mike Reed. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome, Tom. And let me tell you uh, this one thing, you know, the difficulties that we have. Sometimes, um, sometimes the, when we stumble in life, it's because there might be a deeper, richer life waiting that we wouldn't have otherwise experienced. So uh, I think you're doing a fantastic job on these. I've enjoyed every one of these and, and puzzled but seriously honored that you wanted to have me on your show, and I wish you the best of luck with these, buddy. Thank you, Michael. All the best, my friend. Take care of yourself. All right, Tom. All right, bye-bye. Mike Reed, kind enough to join us uh, on Dialed In. I, I know we went a little longer than normal, but the golly day, is that not fascinating stuff? All right, uh, next week, Tim McCarver. Boy, now you talk about a fascinating dude, right? I mean, playing career, uh, broadcasting career, the guy's done it all. And he will be our guest next week. Again, we thank Dave Armbruster. We thank the Believe Network for believing in this show. And I'm Tom Brenneman. And until next week, stay dialed in. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.